The buffalo herds had now migrated south of the Arkansas River, a governed region claimed by many as forsaken ground. Only the brave and experienced hunters ventured south of the Arkansas River, a territory rich in furs, turkey flocks, flush and grouse prairie chickens, all captured in a region claimed by the Indians. That was here, south of the Arkansas River, where the buffalo appeared down the breaks in a string along a narrow trail. A deep rumble to the earth followed them. The dust circled around their humped shoulders, with hooves rattling one by one they appeared. The mighty herd thrust forward with their shaggy heads down, grunting their noses into the circular dust swept about by the wind. Join us now as we take you back into history to a sportsman paradise. The year is 1872. My name is Mike McCabe, and they call me Cranky. Cranky McCabe, that is. I am a full-blooded Irishman. That makes me a spirited man. Even though I am small in stature, I will lessen anyone who is brave enough to take me on. The story I am about to tell you are based on the facts. My facts. Yet some of my stories may not have happened the way you or someone else may have made it out to be. Back in the early days, I worked with a man named Billy Dixon. Billy Dixon, myself, and a few other fellas hunted buffalo, often on the southern plains. We covered a lot of territory in those days between Texas, Nebraska, and Kansas. In the fall of 1872, our team of hunters traveled south along the Arkansas River until we got to a place called Dodge City. There we found the first buildings being constructed. The streets remained lined with wagons bringing in hides and getting supplies. The railroad station happens not to be a station at all, but a boxcar serving as a temporary depot. The town was swarmed with hide buyers and sellers. Operators along the rail line unloaded dozens of railroad cars full of grain, flour and provisions. However, more important to me at that time happened to be my baser needs. After months on the prairie working in blood-stiffened, stinking clothes, with my beard streaked with red blood, I welcomed any type of civilization. So I convinced Billy and the team to put on ours and take a closer look. At this time, Dodge City was the terminus of the railroad. The Santa Fe, Atchison, Topeka companies continued grading tracks moving west to the Colorado state line. The construction crews were made up of Irish immigrants and Civil War veterans. To say the least, these fellows occurred eager for a big time and spent their earnings in the first constructed business establishments of Dodge City. These hastily built establishments, frequently box affairs, included saloons owned by Kelly and Beatty, Murray and Waters, Basin and Harris, and of course there was the Hoover Saloon. None of these places appealed to us, so we decided to trade our earnings for pork and bean dinner at the Cox House Hotel. Now when we stayed in that place, we ran into the proprietor of the hotel, Mr. George B. Cox. Mr. Cox, for some unknown reason, pulled up a chair right next to me. He first asked us about our dinner. Then he began giving us some advice about the town. Mr. Cox and some of the other citizens, not many at the time, had grown concerned about the violence occurring in and out of the saloons. About two weeks ago, according to Mr. Cox, a black man named Tex, some called him Blackjack, happened to be shot in the head by a gambler known as Denver. Those first words got my attention and distracted me from my pork and bean dinner. 
Cox continued as he leaned his head into the middle of our table. When the ruckus started in the street outside of the Kelly and Beatty saloon, you could see one man over the rest of the crowd. Tex was a large man, a big tall black man faced off in the street with a gambler named Denver. Then, out of nowhere, some shots were fired over the crowd's head. The shots caused the crowd to disperse. The only man remaining was Blackjack, lying on the ground, kicking a bit as he occurred to be shot in the head. No one knew who fired the shot. Everybody thought it happened to be an accident. Many who observed the shooting say it was one of the most unprovoked murders ever committed. The townspeople did not know where to bury the man, so they dug a hole on top of the hill and laid him down in it. Billy and I looked at each other as Mr. Cox had our fullest attention. Mr. Cox now leaned back in his chair, took off his hat, and he ran his right hand through his hair. We could sense some sadness in his voice. Unfortunately, just a few days ago, a similar incident over whiskey and anger got my partner, J.M. Essington, shot. He was a carpenter and built this place. Essington got into the whiskey bottle too deeply and started slandering our cook. The cook took offense to his nagging, pulled a revolver from his pants, and shot Essington dead. To the floor he went. Mr. Cox pointed to the portion of the floor in front of us, still covered in bloodstains. Mr. Cox shook his head in disgust. He said, That is where my partner, Mr. Essington, took his last breath. We dug a hole, buried him on the hill, clothes and all. Now we have a new cemetery called Boot Hill. Thus came into prominence Boot Hill as a burial ground. I thought to myself about Mr. Cox's words and why he sat next to us. Maybe it happened to be his way of saying we should never complain about the food. Mr. Cox pulled his chair away from our table and with these parting words. You gentlemen take care of yourselves. Dodge City is starting to have one man a day for breakfast almost every morning to populate the hill. We paid our 75 cents and afterwards decided to boast a little on our talents to some of the locals. So we decided to try our luck at Zimmerman's Hardware Gun and Ammunition Store. There at Zimmerman's, we had the genuine fortune to run into a feller by the name of Charles Rath, who was taking claim to a mercantile company specializing in marketing buffalo hides. It was here Billy and I decided to take a chance on a business venture. I claimed to Mr. Rath with the highest certainty that he was in the presence of one of the greatest buffalo hunters who ever leveled a rifle, the truest shot of the West. I then pointed out Billy Dixon, and Mr. Rath pointed out his knowledge of a migrating buffalo herd. The herd was located on the south side of the Arkansas River, just below Crooked Creek. This arrangement was indeed a real fortune for us. Mr. Rath had just arrived in Dodge City and was putting together a hide operation. Rath and his partner, a man by the name of Robert Wright, had set up a star with the idea of trading general merchandise for buffalo hides. They had a hide yard near the railroad tracks. The hide yard is where the buffalo skins was purchased, stretched, examined for quality, and shipped eastward. Rath and Wright were in need of buffalo hunters, a team of skinners, and wagons to harvest buffalo hides. 
Whilst we were there, we ventured into some of the dance halls. It did not take long before Billy got tired of this place. He was not fond of dancing, nor was he much of a drinker. After we had been at Dodge City for a few days, taking in some of the good times, we grew a little short on money. In fact, I did not have a penny to my name. Billy, seeing I stood penniless, convinced me it was time to move on. So we decided to strike out and find a new hunting ground. Before leaving Dodge City, I helped Billy purchase our provisions for the hunt at the Wright and Rath Merchandising Star. To up our supply at a camp outfit wagon, we purchased an extra large sized Dutch oven, frying pan, meat broiler, and shovel. These purchases added to our inventory of camp supplies of two coffee pots, three big frying pans, a camp kettle, bread pan, tin cups, axes, and our coffee mill. The second wagon hauled our bedding, ammunition, two extra guns, a grindstone, war sacks, and the like. Billy preferred his ammunition to be made from lead bars done up in 25-pound sacks. This included 2,000 primers and two 25-pound cans of powder. Leaving Dodge City, our two wagons, four-man hunting team, went up the north side of the Arkansas River to a place called Nine Mile Ridge. This is where Billy and I paused to stare across the vast prairie into its endless horizon. At the top of the ridge, I remember the glorious sight before us. How the prairie wind was our constant companion. I could hear the gentle whisper echoing across the vast sea of grass, carpeting the land stretched out before us. We sat tall in our saddles, looked in three directions, south, east, and west. We witnessed now evidence of military patrols. Billy, with a gleam in his eye, then boasted. You see, the south region of the Arkansas River was forbidden ground. Billy was a venturous man. I guess that is why he convinced our team to cross over to the south side of the river. Billy and I traveled south until we reached Crooked Creek. There we ran smack into a bunch of Indians and had a skirmish with them. The skirmish of greetings, shouts and shots being fired into the air caused my bones to tremble and hard to beat rushing thoughts of uncertainty into my head. I remember how mortally terrified I was of Indians. I was the best man on the team in any situation, but was horrified at the thought of being scalped to be left half alive. I could smell the odor of the Indian. Their scent had an effect on me like it had on the buffalo. The buffalo, like me, seemed to know when an Indian was around. My heart began to give warning, sensing this approaching band of Indians. The Indians could not speak English. This did not prevent us understanding them. Their old chief motioned us to go northward. That was a long time ago, yet I remember clearly the appearance of this old warrior. Noticeably fastened under the skin of his left cheek, he wore a long, brilliant feather. All the warriors were painted red and yellow. We believed, however that we was able to take care of ourselves, and decided to find the best cover, putting down for the night in a sheltered ravine. That night, each man took his guard, and the campfire was kept low. The next day, Billy and I decided to go out on our own to seek out a herd. We traveled further down the creek. We struck another band of hostiles. This was rather too much of the same thing, 
and we decided if we valued our scalps, we'd better pull out. We turned round and headed for camp. To add to the excitement, we crossed over a ridge and unknowingly began to hear and feel the rumbling of thunder in the distance. Though no storm clouds could be seen, the ground began to tremble, and to our astonishment, we had become surrounded by a thundering herd of hulking animals that stretched further than the eye could see. To our eyes, this sight was both a welcoming and tense moment, as we found ourselves right in the middle of a buffalo stampede. A thousand or more buffalo directly in our path were running the plains, kicking up a thunderous cloud of dust, instantly blinding our vision. In a panicked moment, we spurred our horses, navigating away from the thunderous sound, heading back over the hill once ridden before. All of this excitement caused us to miss our camp by three miles, entering our camp during the night in enemy's country. At sunrise, we called all hands round to discuss the situation. Plainly, to stay south of the Arkansas meant putting in more time fighting Indians than in hunting buffaloes. But buffaloes had begun coming in by the thousands. So we agreed to remain two or three days to make as big a kill as possible. Hunting was good, and a week had slipped by. The hides was green, which forced us to linger until they was dry. Not only were hides more easily handled when dry, but also they made lighter loads. The hides were pegged out around our camp, flesh side up. It took a few days for the hides to dry. About the ninth day, we found ourselves running short of meat. A bunch of buffaloes was grazing about two miles distant. Billy mounted his horse, told us he would ride out and kill two large ones for meat. As Billy rode over the nearby ridge, there was in the men's mind a plausible hint that Indians were moving through the country. Upon reaching the crest of a nearby hill, Billy dismounted his horse and began crawling. When he reached the top of the crest, peering into the valley below, he marked a small herd. The buffalo appeared down the brakes in a string along a narrow trail. A deep rumble to the earth followed them. The dust circled around our hump shoulders, with dew claws rattling one by one they appeared. The herd thrust forward with their shaggy heads down, grunting their noses in a circular dust swept about by the wind. Billy was well acquainted with the ways of the buffaloes. He could judge quickly by their actions whether they would run or stand when approached. He saw that these were getting ready to run. Picking out a young bull, Billy turned loose with his big fifty gun. The herd stampeded at the first crack and raised such a dust that he could distinguish nothing beyond the barrel of his rifle. Shots continued to fire in rapid sessions. As he pulled the trigger, at the indistinguishable mass, crackles of gunfire echoed through the valley. With his dead-eye shooting, he brought down seven other raging beasts before the herd was out of range. What Billy did not realize was how the gunfire set us in motion back at the camp. Billy was out of our sights on the other side of the hill. The muzzle fire from his gun caused us to jump to the conclusion that Indians had attacked Billy. To add to the excitement, a herd of about 50 antelopes appeared on a hill half a mile from camp. The swiftly running animals would traverse a broad circle and dash again to the top of the hill, where they would stand rigidly attentive, gazing in the direction of our camp. 
the excited imaginations of the boys and I in camp soon transformed these harmless creatures into mounted Indians. One of the boys screamed out that Billy had been killed. Another said that Indians scalped him. This excitement in the camp left us not the slightest doubt of Billy having been killed and scalped. His body left weltering in his own blood and speared, arrowed until it resembled a sieve. In the excitement, I began yelling at the boys. Where in thunder are those primers? I can't find a single one. Yet I saw a lot of them only a moment ago. In a panic, I thought to myself, unless we get these shells primed, we'll be in bad shape. I had become so nervous over an Indian attack that I could not sense the primers without me seeing them rattling in my shaking hand. The boys noticed that all along I had yelled for the primers I was holding in my left hand. In just a few minutes, we had prepared ourselves ready for an escape and battle, whatever had to come first. All the fighting guns was conveniently at hand, and all the camp equipment was loaded on the wagon. The boys and I were just at the point of pulling out, but it lingered a moment to debate whether we should recover Billy's dead body or whoop her up for Dodge City. I had insisted that it would be wrong to go away without being sure Billy was dead. While this discussion was underway, each man was as busy as a coon in a hen roost. We did not notice when Billy rode into camp a few minutes later. The boys gazed at Billy in utmost astonishment. They could not believe he had returned, and we began asking him a thousand questions. They laughed over what had happened, each teasing the other about having been scared out of a year's growth. All except for me, all of the boys took the joking in good nature. I was outraged with the event. When the boys began poking fun at me about losing the primers, I slashed on my war paint and squared off the fight. I shouted I would fight with bare fists, with a butcher knife or with a gun, whoever repeated the story. The boys recognized my seriousness, knowing my Irish temperament, and they began to back away. They knew I would have done as I had threatened, but all of them liked me, laughing more from a distance. As the hides dried, we rolled them lengthwise in lots of ten, tied them into a bale, loaded twenty to thirty-five bales into our large wagon, and drove to Dodge City. We were lucky enough to strike a healthy market. We had to make three trips to get all the hides, for which we received from two dollars and fifty cents to four dollars apiece, the highest price we ever received. The full amount was one thousand nine hundred and seventy-five dollars, but Mr. Rath wrote us a check for the even sum of $2,000, a little matter like $25 being of no moment in those days at Dodge City. Afterward, Billy and I parted our ways. He went back to the range to hunt buffalo. I, on the other hand, went to gambling. I stayed in Dodge City a little while longer before I joined a crew grading track to the Colorado line. <laughs>